2: Now, mihi nui and welcome. From Radio New Zealand National, here's Our Changing World. Earlier this year, we featured a team of ag research scientists who developed chemical inhibitors that could significantly reduce methane emissions from animals. That research was carried out in sheep, cattle and deer here in New Zealand, but in parallel the team has also been analysing samples from the stomachs of hundreds of other ruminant animals, from African giraffes to Chinese buffaloes and Slovenian chamois. And they found that the microorganisms responsible for methane emissions are very similar in nearly all ruminants, despite the wide range of species and animal diets. Veronica returns to Palmerston North to meet Peter Jensen and Gemma
1: Henderson to find out what that means for the quest to reduce methane emissions in New Zealand and across the world. Originally when we um, designed the project or came up with the idea for the project we had in mind of including 200 samples approximately and as the project was advertised and we started asking people to provide us with rumen samples the interest was quite large and we ended up receiving over 900 samples from all different corners of the world and very different areas so for example Slovenian mountain chamois samples or also sheep from remote Chilean islands we got some African samples that were collected and we also had all sorts of different interesting samples from South America North America from different farming systems and also from the wild as well
0: so the majority of the animals were cattle and sheep and some goats and deer, so we're very much interested in uh, ruminants that are commercially farmed, but we also wanted to extend that a little bit more into Ruminants that might be considered semi wild or wild as well, just to see how much variation there was in their rumen microbes.
1: Can you give me some examples of those? Sort of the more unusual um, ruminant samples we got were definitely giraffes and then wild, um, as I mentioned earlier, chamois from the Slovenian mountains. Then we also had farmed alpaca, and they're often used for wool, for example. And we also had um, some buffalo samples from China, where they're very popular for um, a dairy animal. We had some bison from America as well, and we had actually also some elk and reindeer, as some of the more unusual ones from, I believe, Finland.
0: Sheep from Scotland, There were also a number of wild ruminants from Canada and lots of farmed ruminants from Canada. Of course, a lot from New Zealand, different breeds and and farming systems around New Zealand. We didn't get samples from everywhere in the world, but we certainly got quite a range, and they're all consuming quite different diets as well. For every single one of those animals, we knew the breed and what it was eating and where it was from, so that enabled us to explore patterns across all of those different variables.
1: Even when we looked at the samples as we received them, we could actually see how different the samples looked. Um, Some were sort of green, like the animals had been eating grass, but we also had some deer samples that we got from Japan that had been eating mainly bark and twigs, and those samples pretty much looked like something scraped off a forest floor, so very, very different to the grass-fed ruminant samples from cattle or sheep. Yet when you looked into
2: the microbiology of all those samples and we are talking very different species of animals
1: very different feeds when you look at the microbiology um the microbiology was actually surprisingly similar across these range of different animals and maybe to go into a bit more detail on the microbiology so the rumen of um ruminants of their full stomach it's absolutely teeming with different microbes there's 10 to the power of 11 so that's one with 11 zeros behind it is the number of cells in a ruminant, um, microbial cells. Per milliliter. Per milliliter. <laughs> and um, and these are all different types of microbes. So there's bacteria, you get um, methanogens, those are the microbes that produce the greenhouse gas methane. You also get protozoa, which are little eukaryotic cells that are much larger. And they all have different roles in the rumen, but primarily they all work together to digest for feed, because without the rumen microbes, cattle wouldn't actually be able to digest grass at all. It would be very difficult for them because they don't have the enzymes they need. But we saw very similar microbes across all the different ruminants.
0: What we found was that the methanogens, which are the methane-producing microbes, they were dominant everywhere. So um, the same ones were dominant everywhere. So one particular group, which makes up about half of all of the methane-producing microbes was in every single sample. was dominant in just about every single sample from all over the world. It doesn't matter where uh, the animals were, which species they were, and what they were eating. And then the next most abundant group makes up about a quarter, and and so on. And and this pattern of, of abundance was just conserved everywhere. And that was probably most surprising, just how similar they are. Actually, on reflection... We probably shouldn't have been that surprised because these methane-producing microbes, they grow on the products produced from the bacteria and the protozoa that ferment the feed. And so they grow on the hydrogen gas that's produced and they convert that hydrogen gas to methane. They just don't care where the hydrogen comes from. And they just like being in the rumen, and these are the ones that are best adapted to the rumen. And it doesn't matter what animal that rumen is in or what feed is going in. As long as something's producing the hydrogen, they grow on it.
2: The good news from that is that whatever is developed here in terms of reducing those emissions of methane should, at least in principle, work just about anywhere else.
0: Yes, if you're developing uh, inhibitors or products like vaccine, it means that a product that's developed here should be able to be applied everywhere in the world and vice versa, something that's developed else overseas should uh, be applicable here. And, and, and that's actually was one of the aims of the project, just to see how variable or similar these were. If it had turned out that the methanogens were different everywhere, it means you need a local solution for the problem everywhere but uh, if they are uh, very similar as they turned out to be it means that a global collaboration or a product developed in one place uh, can result in something that everyone can use.
2: What about the other part of the rumen, the bacteria, were they equally similar?
0: We found that dominant bacteria were found in all the different rumen samples. Um, but their proportion varies. It's the same species, they're just uh, different abundances. What we noted was that these uh, certain species didn't co-occur, and that is that when one went up, another one went up, and when one went down, another one went down. That was pretty rare, and that indicated to us that there weren't very specific cooperations between those microbes, so the cooperations are more generic. As long as there's something making whatever another microbe needs, then they're happy. That was probably a little bit unexpected. What we did notice was that some bacteria are more prevalent on certain diets and some bacteria are more prevalent, say, in cattle and others in deer and sheep. But they'd still be there in cattle, but maybe at lower numbers. But these dominant ones were always there.
2: So if you look at it as a complete ecosystem, the rumen seems to be similar across the globe, across the different species and across different feeding systems.
0: So that's what we found was that the species that were present were the same everywhere in the terms of the bacteria. It's just the way that they're put together, the abundance of each individual type varies a little bit with the diet and the ruminant host. Geography doesn't appear to play a role.
1: Just as a specific example to what Peter was saying, there was a bacterium that's involved in fibre degradation that's called fibrobacter. And that microbe, we found, was much, much more abundant in cattle samples and much less abundant in samples from deer or from goats. And we had a look at sort of evolutionary development and um, of ruminants, and there's a few sort of theories that they display different feeding behaviours. So cattle are much less fussy about what they eat, whereas goats and deer might be a bit more picky and pick out... Um, sort of the more juicier parts of the plant and we thought there might be a relation between the way ruminants historically would have eaten and um, what microbes might be present then. So that is a possible option but that's something that would have to be investigated in much more detail in future in further studies. It's just more an interesting observation that we saw one microbe seem to be much more abundant in cattle than in some other animals.
2: Tell me how you actually went about this. So you were getting all these samples from anywhere in the world being sent to you, I'm assuming, in a little bag full of rumen content. How do you go from there to having a
1: database
2: of what actually lives in those four stomachs or rumen?
1: It's actually quite a longish procedure and in the published paper, there's maybe a paragraph written about this, but what we do is um, we get the samples in and they were all processed in exactly the same way so that we could compare the data between them um, fairly. And what we did was we took the rumen samples and they were ground up into lots of little pieces and then we took a small representative sample from there and we extracted the DNA. And this DNA was then used to identify and amplify marker genes that show you which microbes are present in the rumen samples by um, a sequencing technique. And so once we got the sequencing data back... We could then look at this data and and see which microbes are present there and then analyse that data in context with what else we know about the ruminants, so their species, identity or their location or what diet they were on. We used this data set and the information known about the animals to try and figure out what the effects of species and diet were on the microbial community and also whether the animal microbial communities were the same all over the world or on different diets or under different farming regimes and so forth.
2: If you've used markers of known either methanogens or bacteria, is there a risk that you might have missed something that's there that we don't know about?
0: The uh, process involves uh, polymerase chain reaction amplification of the genes And you use a small synthetic piece of DNA that targets a region of those genes that's highly conserved and found in every bacterium or every methanogen. Now, there was in the past always a concern that this would miss large amounts of maybe the dominant parts of the community, of the microbes that were present. But now, in parallel, using a method we didn't use but in other studies, People have found out, or oh, developed ways of looking at all the DNA, not just a marker gene. And when you compare those, they're pretty similar with what you get using this method. So we're pretty sure that we wouldn't have missed large parts of the uh, microbial community. There's always a risk that there's a few odd rare organisms in there, but it wouldn't change the story that the major microbes are uh, prevalent everywhere.
2: So what do you make of those findings when you think about the evolution of something complex like the rumen?
0: The rumen evolved to extract energy out of feed that otherwise would be unavailable to mammals. It's not unique. There are other mammals, and in fact there's also a bird, that uses foregut fermentation. So there's a chamber in front of the stomach in which a predigestion of the feed occurs. And the fact that regardless of what they're eating and regardless of the species that it's the same microbes tells us that the physical characteristics of this fermentation tank if you want to look at it that way is what determines what's there rather than the biology of the host so what we see is that not only in ruminants but in wallabies which are not related to ruminants all of those have very similar microbes to the uh, microbes that we found in all of these ruminants as well So it really does tell us that it's that physical characteristic of that uh, fermentation tank in front of the true stomach that determines the microbes present.
2: It also tells us that it should in theory be possible with a global effort to tackle methane emissions from agriculture or from ruminant animals.
0: I don't know if it tells us that because it, the, it doesn't take away the technical challenge of controlling the methanogens. They're still there. You've got to find a way of intervening. But what it does tell us is that uh, something that's developed in one place could be applicable everywhere, and that's really, really useful if we have global effort to try and solve the problem.
2: Now, the database itself, it's huge. You've got hundreds of different samples and detailed analysis about the animals, their feed, and the microbiome of their rumen. There's bound to be more in this over the years. Will you be looking at other aspects?
0: One of the things that we've done is we've made this database available so that other people can look at it. While we'd like to continue looking at it, we realise that the database is very useful to other researchers who might have specific questions. And so the actual data set is available available, which requires quite a lot of technical expertise to extract and and, and analyze. But we've also made a summary available, which is actually available in an Excel spreadsheet that can be downloaded. And anyone could just download it on their home computer and have a look. And it's got all 742 samples and how many of each type of bacterium, each type of methanogen and each type of protozoan is present in that sample, plus where the sample came from, what the animals were eating, what type of animal it was and any other information that we know about that animal.
2: For you personally, is there anything in that database that you'd love to have a close look at?
0: Oh, there's some really interesting things, I think, in terms of the microbes that are present and their identities So we have done this analysis because the data set was so large and we were doing it in a general way. We've grouped the bacteria together at a uh, level which we call the genus because otherwise you just have too many groups. And we'd love to drill down deeper and see if there's variation at even lower levels. With the methanogens, we've grouped them approximately at a species level but we'd love to go down it to the strain level. We've found in New Zealand, for example, that it's not only the same species of methanogens everywhere, it's the same dominant strains of methanogens So within the species, and we'd love to know if that was on a global basis as well. But, uh, you know, that's another story.
1: And then also, I mean, other leads that could be followed up are, for example, looking at the interactions of the microbes in more detail to see if they really are just quite generic in terms of how they interact or whether there might be a few specific interactions but again might play a role for methane mitigation if there's particular methanogens that are always present with particular um, bacteria. But again that might be at the strain level rather than at the genus level so that's something that might be worth um, investigating then um, not only is the data available but um, the samples are also still available and as new sequencing technologies are developed they could maybe be used to look at the samples in more detail and instead of just looking at the microbial marker genes for their identity you could also look at functional genes in these um, samples for example are certain enzymes encoded that degrade certain parts of feed better and that could have all sorts of uses later down for improved feed degradation, fibre degradation and ruminants which in the long run would also help animal productivity but those are more pipe dreams at this stage but it would be really interesting to pursue them if possible.
2: And that was Gemma Henderson and you also heard Peter Jensen who are both at AgriSearch in Palmerston North. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this you can find more stories on our webpage, Radio NZ co.nz forward slash Our Changing World Ki oramai.
1: Botox Cosmetic Out Toxin A FDA approved for over 20 years So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you For full prescribing information including boxed warning visit botoxcosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300 Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name